Good morning, everybody. Sorry to uh, abruptly shut off the music, but uh, it's Mike Novak here. And for those of you who like to tune in early to my program, I got a little treat for he, for you here today. Uh, usually, sometimes I go late. Today, I'm going a little early. You know, folks who tune in right at nine are going to go, what the heck is that? Uh, I found this video on uh, YouTube the other day by a guy named Ethan Siegel. He's the founder and primary writer of Starts With a Bang. He's an astrophysicist. And he has this very, very cool video called How Far Can We Go? Limits of Humanity. And for those of you who are like me, thought you were going to grow up and be an astronomer, and you still like what goes on in the universe around you, uh, I think you're going to find this fascinating. I'm starting it early because it runs about three minutes and it'll take us into our show. Uh, and um, uh, I hope uh, you enjoy it. It's not the whole thing, but it is part of it. I think you will find it fascinating. About six billion years ago, dark energy took over. It's basically an invisible force or effect that causes and speeds up the expansion of the universe. We don't know why or what dark energy is, but we can observe its effect clearly. In the early universe, there were larger cold spots around the local group that grew into large clusters with thousands of galaxies. We are surrounded by a lot of stuff. But none of those structures and galaxies outside of the local group are gravitationally bound to us. So the more the universe expands, the larger the distance between us and other gravitational pockets becomes. Over time, dark energy will push the rest of the universe away from us, causing all the other clusters, galaxies and groups to eventually become unreachable. The next galaxy group is already millions of light years away, but all of them are moving away from us at speeds we can't ever hope to match. We could leave the local group and fly through intergalactic space into the darkness, but we would never arrive anywhere. While we will become more and more stranded, the local group will become more tightly bound and merge together to form one giant elliptical galaxy with the unoriginal name Milk Dromeda in a few billion years. But it becomes even more depressing. At some point, the galaxies outside the local group will be so far away that they will be too faint to detect and the few photons that do make it to us will be shifted to such long wavelengths that they'll be undetectable. Once this happens, no information outside of the local group will be able to reach us. The universe will recede from view. It will appear to be dark and empty in all directions, forever. A being born in the far future in Milgrometer will think there is nothing but its own galaxy in the entire universe. When they look far into empty space, they will only see more emptiness and darkness. They won't be able to see cosmic background radiation and they won't be able to learn about the Big Bang. They will have no way of knowing what we know today, the nature of the expanding universe, when it began and how it will end. They will think the universe is static and eternal. Milk Dromeda will be an island in the darkness, slowly getting darker and darker. Still, with its trillion stars, the local group is certainly large enough for humanity. After all, we still haven't figured out how to leave our solar system, and we have billions of years to explore our galaxy. We have the incredible luck to exist at the perfect moment in time to see not only our future, but also our most distant past. As isolated and remote as the local group is, we can perceive the entire universe, grand and spectacular, as it is right now. This video was sponsored by squarespace.com slash nutshell. 
Do you feel isolated in a humongous universe? Why not set up a website or blog and share your thoughts with other humanoids around you? Squarespace lets you do that with easy-to-understand tools, very quickly, and without any knowledge of web design. You can use the code NUTSHELL to save 10% and support Kurzgesagt in making more videos about our place in the universe. Live from the Genesis Art Supply Building on North Elston Avenue, just this side of the concrete-encrusted banks of the north branch of the Chicago River, it's the Mike Novak Show. Still Chicago's only locally broadcast deep green gardening and environment program. Heard every Sunday on Q4 Radio and at MikeNovak.net. Good planets hard to find. Temperate zones and tropic climes. True currents and thriving seas. Wind blowing through breathing trees. Strong ozone and safe sunshine. Well, good planets are hard to find. It's a long way to Tipperary. That's why he's riding the Megabus. Here he is, Mike Novak. You know, I don't know if the Megabus will get you to the end of the universe. You could try it. I wonder what they charge for that. Here we go. One more time. Uh, welcome to the Mike Novak Show on a Sunday morning, a chilly Sunday morning. Some of you um, in the area here of Chicago. Now, there, I know that there are folks who listen all over the country, but in Chicago, everybody was panicking yesterday. Because it was going to get into the 30s last night. Well, let me put it this way. The gardeners were panicking last night. And uh, I got a, a report from Rick DeMaio who said it wasn't quite as bad as had been predicted. So that's a good thing. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. I'm, uh, and very briefly, for those who were listening at the top of the show and may have caught it early, uh, you, you might have heard my little announcement before I played that audio clip, which is... It's a, a YouTube from a guy named Ethan Siegel, founder and primary writer of Starts With a Bang. He's an astrophysicist. He put together this uh, video called How Far Can We Go? The Limits of Humanity. And it's kind of interesting there if you're listening with the, you know, the, the British guy, uh, the British accent and the, and the fluffy music in the background saying, oh, you know, and if we go a few billion years, we'll be isolated from everything else in the universe and you'll never see anything ever again. La-di-da-di-da. Isn't that fun? Uh, and I, I just had to play that because I, I stumbled across it this week. So that's, that's why that, that was in there. But today's show is much more immediate than our universe receding from us at an ever- uh, growing pace, an ever-accelerating pace. And that's because we're going to start the show by going out to Whiting, Indiana, for what is uh, being called um, a... Uh, let me, let me, let me, I should do that from my own uh, website, but it's being called the, the greatest mobilization environmental uh, protest in history. Uh, which is uh, pretty remarkable uh, when you think about that. And it's called Break Free Midwest. And I've got a couple of people there I will get to in just a second. Um, and um, 
It's uh, and actually, let me correct myself. It's being called the largest civil disobedience in the history of the environmental movement, and they're looking to have a thousand people there from all over the Midwest in Whiting. Indiana. Now, if you want to go there, the reason I'm starting at 9 a.m., uh, I'm doing things a little a little uh, ba- backward uh, today. I usually uh, start with gardening stuff uh, at, at this point. And uh, today I am um, starting with the Break Free Midwest rally out in Whiting, Indiana. And by the way, uh, you can you can be part of that. You just go to Whiting Lakefront Park at 1798 119th Street in Whiting. And everything starts really officially at noon. There'll be stuff starting at 10 a.m. Uh, so you can, you can be part of that. And um, so I needed to talk to the folks because Thomas Frank and Ashley Williams, who are part of this, and of course you know Ashley Williams is part of my team of the Mike Novak Show, they are uh, out there, uh, so they're part of the Break Free from Fossil Fuels. That is, it's a worldwide event that's been happening over the last two weeks. And this is a culmination in Whiting, Indiana, and it starts really at 10. Uh, but if you get there for noon, that's when there's going to be uh, all kinds of stuff going on, and we'll tell you about it. And then at 10 o'clock, Dan Costa from Vern Goer's Greenhouse in Hinsdale. He's my bonsai friend, but we're going to talk um, care of your plants in, you know, when it gets to be in the 30s and low toxicity uh, means of taking care of pest problems. He will be here at 10 a.m. So get your garden questions ready. Get those ready and call him in at 312-985-7834 or uh, get on Twitter or get on Facebook or write to me, Mike, at MikeNovak.net. All right. That all being said, let's go to the phones and let's hope that this is working. Uh, do I have uh, Thomas and Ashley? Hello? You do. Yes, Hi. I, wow. Yeah, this is Thomas as well. We're here. Okay. The technology is working. It always, it always warms my heart when the technology works here. Thomas, let's start with you because uh, um, Thomas is an activist and he's an artist and, he, and he's from Indiana. You live out Indiana way. Exactly where, Thomas? I live in East Chicago, Indiana, which is just south of Whiting. So the BP refinery straddles three communities, Whiting, East Chicago, and Hammond. Okay. And so in a nutshell, why the refinery here in Whiting? Why is this the focus of uh, Break Free from Fossil Fuels 2016? Well, that's really easy to answer because this is literally the largest uh, carbon bomb in our country, the BP refinery is the largest tar sands refinery in our country, and it's the most intensive carbon uh, uh, emitter in our country um, at the end of the uh, tar sand supply chain. And so they're refining this stuff right here on the southern shores of Lake Michigan, just a few feet from Chicago. Uh, and, of course, dumping some of it uh, accidentally into the lake occasionally, that, that tends to happen as well. Um, so tell me, uh, in terms of organizing, uh, why is this the final stop for break free from fossil fuels? Is it the same reason that this is the, the, the tar sands bomb that you talk about? Is that why this is the final day? Because this has been going on for two weeks all over the globe. Right. So we're actually there's many uh, actions happening all over the country and in the and also the globe today. So 
there is a, there was a two week uh, window uh, to organize uh, against uh, regional and local uh, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, whether it was coal, gas, or, or oil. Okay, so tell me about um, some of what's going to be going on there today in Whiting, Indiana, and of course you're encouraging people to come out any time uh, between now and uh, the afternoon, right? Oh, yes. We're encouraging everybody to come out. It should be a really fun day. We're at Whiting Lakefront Park, and it's a beautiful park that sits right between downtown Chicago, where you can see to your to the north uh, the skyline, and then when you look to the south, uh, you have the refinery. So it's a, it's a contrast of of two different uh, landscapes. And you have Lake Michigan right in front of you. Uh, right now, it's a partly sunny day. Uh, when the sun is out, it's very nice. Uh, so this is going to be a very, very nice day. So I encourage everybody to come out today. Yeah, you guys would have hoped it was 70 and sunny. But uh, you know what? It's not raining. Uh, and, you know, Midwesterners are tough. They get it. They know that they put a jacket on, they're going to be fine on the lakefront, right? Right, right. Um, so uh, you have uh, a number of ceremonies before uh, noon, noon is is the real kickoff, right? You've got something called a kayaktivist demonstration. What's that? Right. Um, at noon, we're going to have kayaktivists entering the, uh, Lake Michigan into the waters, and they're going to have a flotilla uh, and some banners that they're going to be uh, 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 rising. And uh, at that same time, we're going to have a ne- uh, news press or a conference and. Uh, but prior to that, uh, as a setup to that, we're, we're starting the day with a water ceremony with the First Nations, the Potawatomi, here. So at 10 o'clock, that's when that starts. Those are kind of like the pre-event uh, uh, events. Uh-huh. Um, and, and what will the water ceremony be like? So we have them doing a blessing of the water, uh, the First Nations. This is something that's traditional within their, uh, their tradition. Um, it's also uh, something that that women are the protectors of the waters, and so it will be led by the women uh, of the First Nations. Uh, and so it's a way to give uh, respect to those who occupied this land before it was taken uh, and before uh, a lot of the industries came and relocated and really did a horrible job of managing and stewarding the environment. That's that's one way of putting it. I mean, when you have a tar sands uh, refinery uh, there on the lake, and you know, and and that's something that I have always uh, never been able to understand is how we as a people, and I mean the the human species, we take the best parts of our planet, the lakefront, the the river fronts, you know, you know, the access to the water. And that's where we put our most polluting industries, and and we fence it off to uh, the average citizens, and we allow the big companies to dump things into our waterways, and it just seems like we've got it backwards. Right, right, and we do have. I mean, right now we're this area is uh, the Calumet Industrial Corridor. It's one of the oldest, largest industrial corridors on this planet, and it's done enormous amount of damage. And we really haven't repurposed it and reclaimed it and cleaned it up. One of the things that the First Nations, a tradition they have is the seven generations uh, idea, is that if they, if they do have impacts on the environment, they, they ensure that by within seven generations that it's, that it's repaired. We're in a situation where we've destroyed some of these lands for the rest, for seven 
or 10,000 generations. Yeah. So these are, these are really serious impacts uh, that we need to address. And, and one of the things you pointed out to me, and we chatted the other day, um, there's a little bit of a monkey wrench thrown into the Kai activist demonstration in that didn't um, the uh, facility there decide to dredge the harbor all of a sudden? Right. So we've had a couple of monkey wrenches thrown in um, in unannounced ways. We've had a railroad crossing closed on us, and that was one of the entries into the park. Really? And when when was that? When was that? Two weeks ago, they unannounced. It was, the city wasn't aware of it, apparently, and suddenly the railroad was uh, closing up that uh, entry. And also, just this week, we, we were notified that the Army Corps is going to be dredging the, uh, uh, the boat launch. Uh, so those were some things that just happened uh, very, very quickly. Um, these kinds of big infrastructure projects don't happen that unannounced. Yeah. People usually are, it takes months to prepare for those things and give people notice, and that wasn't the case here. Yeah, wow, surprise, we're dredging. Oh, gee, you're having a, a bunch of kayaks there? We, it never even occurred to us that uh, that might get in the way. Wow, that's really interesting. All right, before I let you go, give me uh, set a scene for me. Uh, what does it look like in terms of the crowd right now? Well, right now people are just gathering. We're um, we're just getting everything set up: uh, the stage, the sound, uh, the art. Uh, we're getting the kayakists in place. They're not going to be entering the water until about ten thirty, eleven, to get some training. Uh, the first thing that that we're going to have is the gathering with the First Nations. So and we're getting the pavilion. There's a, a large pavilion uh, with a lot of vendors uh, that are going to be there. And so we're just beginning to set that up. And so right now there's a lot of activity in the park getting things set up. And, of course, you have a lot of responsibilities there because you're one of the point people. You've, you've actually worked with the authorities, haven't you? Right. So I'm kind of the liaison with the city uh, and uh, um, the uh, police at this moment uh, in terms of coordinating our efforts and making sure everybody's safe on both sides. And the main thing to kind of think of this is it's a it's a great day to celebrate at the same time that we're we're making a call out to break free from fossil fuels and to keep uh, the fossil fuels in the ground. So we have a lot of family activities going on. Um, I think uh, uh, a peaceful direct action is going to be the end of the thing. It's not what this is about entirely, but we're we're insistent on escalating the situation and bringing our voices uh, to bear and making sure people know that people are the solutions. They, the industries and the municipalities haven't, and our and our political uh, uh, figures haven't made the right decisions uh, to make this transition, and we're really trying to encourage that and being insistent on that 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 happen. All right. Well, good luck to you, uh, Thomas Frank. And I should mention that uh, you and I talked yesterday, and after I talk to uh, Ashley Williams uh, from my team here, the Mike Novak Show, uh, I will be playing that interview. It goes into more detail about some of this. Uh, I just wanted to set the scene here. I know you're there, and I, and I know you're busy, and I really appreciate you taking the time to get on the show for a few brief minutes, Thomas. Well, thank you for having us. This has been wonderful. Thank you. And, uh, again, if folks want to get out there, it's at Whiting Lakefront Park, uh, 1798-119th Street in Whiting. Uh, the information is on my website, mikenovak.net. You can also go to uh, midwest.breakfree.com. 
2016.org. Uh, and, of course, that information is on the website. I'm going to let you go, Thomas Frank, and uh, I will talk to Ashley Williams. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, you there, Ashley? Hey, Mike. Yeah, I am. How are you doing? Okay, how are you doing? You're you're a busy gal, <laughs> aren't you? What? Yes, I am. I'm doing fantastic. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, you're you always seem to be in the middle of things uh, <laughs> when it comes to uh, tar sands and uh, frac sand mining and um, and movie previews. Uh, how do you find time to even get your homework done at school? <laughs> oh, I love being in the thick of it. Um, actually, I am. I just concluded my my semester, um, so actually, all yeah, all this planning was done pretty much during like finals mayhem and whatnot. I don't know. I guess it's just all in prioritizing stuff. Um, this is my passion. This is my love. So I devote all the time I can, all my free time when I'm not studying and doing homework and prepping for finals um, was all to this. So I don't know. I just again, it's just. I prioritize what means the most to me. Well, you know, it's funny because a couple of weeks ago uh, we were talking about some of the issues uh, uh, in your home area of LaSalle, and I asked you to be on the show, and Ashley uh, wrote back to me. She said, well, um, I'm in the middle of finals. Uh, is that okay? <laughs> I said, okay. No, no, don't come in. Study for your finals. You got Because she's studying uh, environmental law at Loyola, uh, and uh, and so I hope things went well. Did you feel like they went well for you? Yeah, it went really well. I already got my grades back. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, okay. I, just, I got my 4.0, so I'm happy. You got your 4.0. Wait a second. That's a beer ding. There we go. Wow. <laughs> you know, you're too smart to be on this show. Uh, or, or actually, oh, maybe, no maybe we need you on the show so that you can uh, bring bump the level up. Well, what have they got you doing out there uh, in Whiting, Indiana this morning? Well, I've been doing a bunch of things. Um, really, my thing right now is uh, doing all the rally coordination. So um, right after our press conference, so it's going to be kayaktivism and the press conference, um, we're going to open it up with some music. So I, I booked a performer, uh, Tall Paul, and he's an indigenous uh, rap artist from Minnesota, from Minneapolis, actually. And he just arrived yesterday on one of our buses that were coming from that region. Um, and then we're actually going to transition to Malik Yusuf, who is a Chicago native. And um, he's done so much. He's part of like the Hip Hop Caucus, um, five-time Grammy Award winner. Um, really happy to have him, and he's going to be doing some great spoken word. Um, and then we're going to be transitioning into the rally portion. So that's been like my baby um, and what I've been um, devoting the most time to. So if you want, I can kind of give you a little preview. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear listeners. that about the rally, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so, okay. So as I said, I left off with Net, uh, Malik. And uh, we're going to be transitioning. Our MCs are going to be introducing our rally speakers. Um, so some of the people that we have are uh, um, Olga Batista, who's actually in, um, on our planning staff. Um, she's going to be speaking a little. Um, we have actually. Well, uh, can you can uh, I stop? Can I stop you there for a second? Tell us a little about uh, about Olga. Yeah, Olga is great. So I'm on the coalition of Ampacarp with her. Um, she's uh, one of the members. She's also a board member of the Southeast Environmental Task Force. Um, oh, they get a ding. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
fantastic. They've been doing so much great work on the southeast side um, against Pat Cook. So she's going to be there, and she's going to be repping that issue and repping um, for the frontline communities that are, you know, battling these environmental hazards. Um, and just, you know, uh, representing the community, representing, you know, being a mom in the midst of all this. And it's just amazing what she does in carrying a family and just being this, this environmental champion for all of us. Um, so she's mainly going to be speaking to those issues. Um, as Thomas has said, one of, some of our main issues is just um, really reiterating the concept of a just transition, um, keeping fossil fuels in the ground, and that we're no longer going to be um, sacrificed communities. So those are kind of like the three things we really want to touch, uh, touch on and some other things. Um, uh, after, so Olga's going to be actually at opening up our rally which I think is fantastic um, and is uh, one of the things I really wanted to make sure to showcase her voice. Um, we also have Laurel Kilpatrick, and she's going to be coming from Black Lives Matter, Gary. Um, so she's going to be talking about that. Um, we have Claire McClinton coming, um, and she's going to be uh, repping the Flint water issue, and she's going to bring, be bringing some lovely ladies with her as well. Um, so we're excited to have her. She's actually going to be ending our, our rally. Um, and so from her uh, closing remarks, we're going to go actually into the march. And with the march, we're going to be um, defending on BP. It's going to be about a two about a two mile march um, on the refinery. And I don't know if you know this, but the refinery is about the size of the Chicago Loop. <laughs> so just put that in your mind. Yeah. And well, you know. Uh, Ashley, I will tell you that I spoke out there at a rally. I was uh, uh, the MC for a rally about a year and a half ago out that way, yeah. and um, and you'll hear it when I talk to uh, Thomas Frank uh, in the interview I did with him yesterday, which we're going to run in just a few minutes. Um, right. It's really imposing. I mean, this huge facility. Mm-hmm. It's 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 a little intimidating, uh, and as you say, it's yeah. it's huge. Yeah, no, it's absolutely sprawling. It is the largest tar sand oil refinery in the entire country. Um, and so it's, we're going to be, it's all going to be culminating in this uh, direct action that's going to be happening outside um, at the end of that two mile mark. Um, and it's, it's going to be really great. So that's um, going to be the highlight of, of the day. Um, also say with, with the speakers, so the, the audience knows we're going to be, get, we got Bill McKibben. Bill McKibben's going to be speaking um, from you know, from three yeah uh, three co-founder f- of three fifty right mm-hmm. right co-founder of three fifty dot org. I just wanted to make sure folks uh, knew about Bill McKibben uh, if they didn't recognize the name. Yeah, he's going to be there. Um, he it was we had been pursuing for him for a while, and we're so happy to have him with us um, alongside uh, Bill. Our other keynote is going to be Tara Hauska. Um, Tara is the Native American advisor for Bernie Sanders, <laughs> um, and she also does, uh, she's a national campaign director for Honor the Earth, um, and she's an attorney by trade, um, so she's going to be our other MC, and we're so happy uh, to have her as well. Uh, I should ask, I have to ask you this question, because it is a civil disobedience, mm-hmm. um, what kind of security are you looking at there and do you expect to have any run-ins with with uh, law enforcement today oh yes <laughs> oh really yeah okay. um yes absolutely and that that's been anticipated um i um have not been part of that that planning um but i know very much that they're anticipating so many scenarios 
and um, for sure law enforcement um, intervention. Um, and that's okay, and we're, we're planning for that. Um, the degree, we, we don't know, um, but we're, we're anticipating for all various uh, kinds of scenarios and um, those that are going to be willing to actually submit to, to arrest um, within the direct action. Uh, and as you uh, mentioned, uh, the march ends, and that's, I assume, where you expect to have some of this um, uh, civil disobedience. Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be um, second. there's going to be uh, people that are going to be blockading um, one of the entrances to VP, um, and and so that's what uh, is going to kind of be involved with with that direct mm-hmm. action. Um, we're not going to give out all the details. Um, people will know of the march as they as they march on, but um, there's going to be uh, yeah some direct action going on. At the end of it. Okay, um, and what uh, you you've said that um, uh, we talked before we went on our air today, and you said that uh, maybe you'll give me another report later on, uh, a little before eleven a.m. Uh, let me know what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, what do you see now? Um, are buses still uh, rolling in? Are folks coming in? Yeah. So actually, I'm I'm actually back at uh, Thomas's house right now. Um, and I will be going straight there. Ah. Um, like you said, Thomas is whatever he told you. Um, right now, you know, it's it's starting to um, you know slowly pick up. People are rolling in, um, so there's not too much going on right now. Um, you know, with there's it's going to start picking up with like the water ceremony. All our vendors are going to be coming in, um, and so forth. So it's really I think when I call in, um, there's going to be a lot more people and more and more um, to report. <laughs> well, we hope we know we're we're hoping like I mean we were setting like an ideal target of about fifteen hundred. But I mean, we surely want to surpass that. So, so who knows? There's going to be so many people coming from yeah, just the buses alone. Um, not to mention like locally. So, you know, who knows what kind of you know number that we're going to be seeing today? But we're remaining very optimistic. Uh huh. Well, of course, uh, and I will let people know uh, that uh, they're welcome to go down there to the rally, as as uh, Thomas said. It, uh, there's a lot going on. It's not just the protest. There's, there's uh, entertainment, as you said, some very good entertainment. Uh, I can hear the wind going through your, uh, your phone now. Uh, and um, there's uh, uh, vendors and there's all kinds of stuff happening. So it's a long day and a chance for people to express their displeasure with our continuing use of fossil fuels in the United States. And that's what this whole... Mm-hmm. Uh, break free from fossil fuels. The two-week period has been all about the wave of action, and as uh, Thomas Frank mentioned, it's going on all over the planet, and this is just one of the locations at uh, Whiting, Indiana. Uh, okay, well, uh, Ashley, I know you're busy. you got to get over there. you got to get stuff done. Um, um, call in later, and uh, we'll talk, and you can let me know what's happening. I sure will. I will talk to you just before 11. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Take care, sir. It's the Mike Novak Show on Q4, 1680 AM, and you heard it here, the live report from Whiting, Indiana, and the rally today for Break Free Midwest. As I mentioned before, um, you can go to my website, MikeNovak.net, and if you read about this week's show, you'll have all the information there, including the address, but uh, I can give that to you one more time in case um, 
you, you're thinking this morning, it's a beautiful day. Let's go protest tar sands. Let's protest. Let's, you know, let's tell people, keep it in the ground. Keep the fossil fuels in the ground. We have folks on this show all the time, people like, uh, like Lisa Albrecht with uh, Solar Service Inc. and the Illinois Solar Energy Association. We know that wind power works. We know that solar works. It's time to make the transition. It's time to get different jobs. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about that with uh, Thomas Frank a little bit after the break. And by the way, the site, again, is Whiting Lakefront Park, 1798 119th Street in Whiting, Indiana. Zip code 46394 in case you're using your device, which needs to uh, zero in on that. It's the Mike Novak Show, as I mentioned before. We're going to take a short break here. And when we come back, talk to Thomas Frank in a little more detail about why it's important to have the Break Free from Fossil Fuels rally today, Break Free Midwest out in Whiting, Indiana. And I want to remind folks, Dan Costa, plantsman. Well, he's not a plantsman. He's a, he's a horticulturist from Vern Goer's Greenhouse in Hinsdale. He will be here at 10. We're flipping it a little bit. We'll do our gardening talk at 10 uh, and talk to him about the cold weather and other things going on. I'm, I'm sure he had people come in yesterday to the greenhouse and say, what do I do about my tomatoes? Uh, and he'll have that information. Uh, and then Rick DeMaio will be <laughs> here at 1045 or a little, maybe even a little earlier so I can say, hey, man, what's up? What's up with these temperatures? What's that all about? So uh, it's all on the Mike Novak show. We'll be right back. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Did you know Chicagoans are getting healthier all the time? Hi, I'm Peggy, and I know this is true because for six years I've been publishing Natural Awakening, Chicago's greenest and healthiest magazine. And if you want your message to reach this growing market, you do need to get your business in front of our readers. Why? Because our advertisers tell us that our targeted readers are committed to improving their health and ready to take action. That's more than 80,000 people in Chicagoland who will respond to your message. They're looking for holistic wellness practitioners, integrative doctors and dentists, nutritionists, health coaches, yoga instructors, even home improvement and landscape experts. Natural Awakenings is a free monthly magazine available in more than 1,100 locations throughout Cook, Lake, and McHenry counties. Call me today to expand your market and grow your business. 847-858-3697. That's 847-858-3697. Natural Awakenings. Feel good, live simply, laugh more. Want to make a positive move in the housing market? Replace your siding and windows. You'll improve your home's look and energy efficiency, too. Trust DR Services Unlimited, 847-998-1687 for your remodeling and energy needs. Siding, windows, solar and wind power, and more. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau and recommended on Angie's List. DR is a proud member of NARI. DR provides exceptional quality at a fair price. Contact DR at 847-998-1687 or at RestoreTheNorthShore.com. This might just be my opinion, but 
One reason that people get frustrated with gardening magazines is, well, garden envy. You hate it when everybody else's garden looks better than yours, right? Well, that's why the May-June issue of Chicagoland Gardening Magazine might be for you. There's an article called Crop Failures, and yes, it's about a garden that went haywire. Woohoo! Take that, you garden writers. All right, all right, calm down. But isn't it great to see uh, a little reality in your L-I-F-E? Then there's my column on the inside back page of every issue. Talk about brutal, unrelenting, no-looking-the-other-way reality. I don't know how I survive my writing deadlines. Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, a publication of state-by-state gardening magazines. Go to chicagolandgardening.com. But if you're in other parts of the Midwest or the South, try one of the 21 magazines in those regions by going to statebystategardening.com or call 888-265-3600, 888-265-3600. Now, you're a gardener. And you've heard over and over again about how important it is to help our pollinators by putting native plants in your garden. And yet, you haven't really figured out how to make the switch. It's a little intimidating, right? You can never find the plants that you want, and you'd like some advice to go with those little blue stems, wouldn't you? Fear no more. Natural communities' native plants are here. And you can get them online at naturalcommunities.net. You know, there's a lot of uh, garden sales, plant sales going on, and they kind of run out at the end of this month. May is like the plant sale month. And uh, when they're done, then you think, oh, where can I get those plants? Well, one of the places is naturalcommunities.net. Natural communities, native plants are locally grown and sourced, featuring more than 150 species native to the Chicago region. They have convenient online shopping and mail delivery, but they also appear at local green events where you can get those questions answered. Garden with plants that have thousands of years of natural design behind them and that have been working for thousands of years with our local pollinators and other fauna. Garden with native plants. And in Chicagoland, the way to do that is with natural communities, native plants. Go to natural communities. You're listening to the Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio, sixteen eighty AM. Okay, you just heard from Thomas Frank. Now, you heard from him live, and uh, Ashley Williams as well, from Indiana, from uh, the mobilization at the Whiting Lakefront Park in Whiting, Indiana. Uh, This segment is taped because uh, (laughs) Thomas is a busy guy today, all right? That's something you need to know. He's organizing folks from all over. Uh, Thomas, by the way, Thomas Frank. Uh, on on the line here, you've got people from what all over the Midwest or all over the country or all over the world. Where are people coming from here? Right, we're predominantly getting people from all over the Great Lakes and Midwest area, as far as Kansas City, uh, Detroit, Minneapolis, Duluth, 
they're just coming from all over. But we also know there, there are people coming from California and Washington and various other places, mainly because BP is such a high-profile uh, entity and many people are quite angry with how they've been operating in the last decade or so. Yeah, I was actually at a rally out BP Way um, two years ago, about a year and a half ago, because uh, I've, uh, I've I've still have photos from that, and uh, they that seems to be a popular gathering place for folks, doesn't it? Right, right. And what they've done in the Gulf, they've done here on the Great Lakes as well. And people really don't quite understand their history and legacy here. Right now, I'm sitting at, at Whiting Lakefront Park the day before the event, and we're sitting on really close to the refinery where they spilled 16.8 million gallons of oil oh, about 15, 20 years ago, and they've never been sighted and it's never been cleaned up. Uh, so there are lots of environmental uh, damages that they're really quite responsible for over, over the last 100 years, this facility. Well, actually, there was another spill more recently than that, wasn't there? Right. Just two years ago, uh, in March of 2014, they spilled uh, into Lake Michigan what was tar sands, and uh, they really got away with not having to disclose how much. They didn't have the EPA on site. They didn't, didn't, you know, notify the public for over a day. Uh, So, and there hasn't been a report on it. Uh, So, they've been getting away with a lot of things for a long time. And in, in fact, just this last Wednesday, We've been getting a lot of sulfur and uh, uh, natural gas and uh, uh, crude oil smells all the way through the region. Apparently, there something had been dumped into the sewers here, and it's been spreading through the sewers, and people have been smelling it as far away as uh, Munster, Indiana. Yikes. You know, it makes me wonder, where is the uh, Indiana Attorney General? Where is the Indiana... Uh, IEP or uh, yeah, the IEPA, uh, Indiana. Uh, where are these folks? Right. Well, this is in Indiana. It's the IDEM, Indiana Department of Environmental Management, and that's okay. a real issue here. Um, take for instance when they spilled into Lake Michigan. Um, there hadn't been a single public official or entity that raised their voice against BP in in trying to protect the Great Lakes and their freshwater resource. It took other mayors and other government officials from other areas in the Great Lakes to say, hey, this, we object to how you're operating down here. It seems like you're, is a very dangerous thing, and it shouldn't be on the Great Lakes. Uh, but here, they're very, very protective. We do have a regional think, and BP had made nearly a $5 billion recent investment here uh, in tar sands. And so many people, are, at least the, the political establishment, is very protective of them. Yikes. Well, that's one of the reasons why you're there. And let's talk a little bit about Break Free Midwest. This uh, has been described as the uh, largest civil disobedience in the history of the environmental movement. That's kind of hard to fathom. Uh, you know, I, there's been a lot of marches, a lot of different stuff. How is it that is this can be categorized in that way? Right. Well, uh, unlike in the past where we just have one uh, place where everybody congregated, this year we're, we're asking people to go in the different regions throughout the world to, to uh, target their regional uh, in, you know, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, whether it's coal, gas, or, or oil. And here in the Great Lakes region, we have the largest tar sands refinery. 
uh, in the entire country, right here in, in Whiting, Indiana, and East Chicago. And so everybody in this region is concentrating here. So all the way around the world, we have actions like this occurring, and we have about six of them in, in the United States as well. Uh, and they're, what we're doing is we're upping the ante. We're, we are uh, being a little bit more aggressive. We're being, you know, lots of legal avenues, policy avenues haven't worked. Uh, we've been fighting this for decades, and what we need isn't happening. So we're trying to raise the profile, bring more attention to it, whether it is by numbers in different regions or by uh, upping the ante with actions. And one of the important uh, aspects of this is the 62-year-old Enbridge Line 5. Now, folks, there are folks, I'm sure, who are listening, have no idea what that is. Perhaps you want to explain that, Thomas Frank. Right. So about 60-some years ago, uh, uh, Enbridge had uh, sunk a large pipeline through the Great Lakes uh, in the Mackinac Straits area. Uh, it was mostly served by natural gas. They are recently seeking to repurpose it for tar sands. Now, remember, it's a it's a 60-some-year-old, 62-year-old pipeline. Uh, it's already, we've gone down there and done some investigations. It's already having some problems, uh, lost supports and various things like that. But now they want to run tar sands through, which is a much more corrosive, heavier, uh, and they want to increase the pressure to be able to push the tar sands through it. Um, studies have been done, and I have to tell you, if, if that were to spill in the Great Lakes, it would, be, it would just completely devastate a large, large region of the Great Lakes and our freshwater resource. Uh, it took more than a billion dollars to clean up Enbridge's spill into the Kalamazoo River. Uh, this would be a much more horrific situation if that were to occur here, and it just seems uh, to be uh, um, a horrifically unwise uh, uh, option here. Well, so, it's, it seems like we're putting 20% of the fresh water on the planet at risk, basically, yeah. right now. I mean, we've seen, uh, I have to mention, there was an, another spill in the Gulf of Mexico just the other day, Shell spilled. They don't even call it a spill. I, I, I received this information from Sierra Club. They're calling it a release. Yeah, as if you can just... You rename it something, and that's what it is. But, no, they spilled about, uh, I think, 90,000 gallons of crude uh, into the Gulf of Mexico, as if the Gulf of Mexico really needs that anymore. Right. And we're just, I mean, Enbridge is responsible for eight more than 800 spills in the last 15 years. I mean, it's not a safe, if you build a pipeline, it's going to spill. Of course. And, and, and just ask the people in Kalamazoo who are dealing with this now, what, five years later? Right, and it's really not cleaned up yet, and many people have gotten ill, and several people have died, even just recently a young boy who was swimming in the river after they had told them that it was cleaned up. Really? I, didn't, I wasn't yeah. aware of that. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And, and of course, the danger here, uh, as you noted, and, but I, but I want to emphasize this, is that this pipe, okay, it's already 62 years old. It handled crude before, but it has not handled tar sands. And so what they want to do is they want to push through the tar sands what could possibly go wrong uh, when, yeah. you, when, you, when you do that through a 62-year-old pipeline that's sitting at the bottom of Lake Michigan. 
Right, and when you have to heat up the product because it's so thick, and then you have to increase the pressure on the on the product to push it through, I, I think we're just asking for a major, major disaster. I, I believe we are, um, and that's why uh, you guys are having the Break Free Midwest. Uh, if you want more information about it, uh, even if you're not able to uh, to go there, you can go to midwest.breakfree. 2016.org midwest.breakfree2016.org uh, oh well let me let me let me ask you one more thing because you you've mentioned the intensity of this part of this is civil disobedience what do you expect to have happen in terms of civil disobedience well right now we're working on several scenarios like i said we're looking to up the ante in terms of uh the type of actions that we're willing to do uh to bring attention to this um we're looking at um uh several scenarios um there about we have many uh people that have showed interest that they were willing to risk arrest so we're going to be doing some sort of peaceful direct action I'm simply not uh, at liberty to say what we're going to do, and I'm not certain we know exactly which scenario we're going to adopt at the at the moment. Uh, but uh, we're what our main goal is to communicate our message um, that we're in we're way beyond uh, the late stages of the fossil fuel era, and we really need to move beyond it. And we need a just transition, especially for communities like Whiting and East Chicago that are housing that infrastructure that can be hugely impacted uh, when there are demands to shut these things down. Now, BP refinery sits at the end of the tar sands pipeline system, and it literally is the largest carbon bomb in our country right now. And there's going to be lots of pressure when we need to reduce our carbon swiftly uh, to, to shut this down or to stop the tar sands. And that's going to leave a lot of union workers out of work, and it's going to leave a, a region in, in economic disarray. So we're looking to prepare for, for a transition and asking for that infrastructure to be placed here. Um, and uh, so that's, that's basically our message. We're asking to break free from fossil fuels, keep it in the ground, uh, a just transition for the community and the workers or and safety for the community and workers. It's very similar to the... You, oil workers' uh, message when they struck last year. Uh, we're still asking for the same thing. You know, uh, you brought up two really good points, uh, one of which is uh, I don't think people understand that Whiting, Indiana, is kind of ground zero for tar sands. Uh, people think of Alberta, Canada, uh, and and they also think of the, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, which the Obama administration uh, put the kibosh on. Um, but there are other pipelines that go through the Midwest. They're, they they crisscross all over our country, and I don't think a lot of folks are aware of that. And where do they end up? Whiting, Indiana. That's where the tar sands come. So what, if you think of Alberta, Canada as the place, yeah, that's where it's being extracted. Where is it being refined? In Indiana, in Whiting, Indiana. Um, and the other point you make that is very important and is a tougher one, is the idea that there are going to be jobs lost. There have to be. We have to move forward. So what we what the, the project has to be is to figure out how to take those jobs that are the refining of these fossil fuels, how do we put them into clean energy? How do we transfer 
those jobs so that people have work. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton has gotten in trouble in West Virginia for saying you're going to lose coal jobs. Well, she's only speaking the truth when she says that. That's got to happen. And it's the same thing with uh, tar sands, isn't it, uh, Thomas? Yeah, and we're seeing that already. We're, we've seen nearly three-quarters of the oil worker jobs lost in the last two years uh, with the boom and bust in the Bakken oil fields. And so we're, you know, Fortune magazine has predicted that by the end of 2016 in the United States, there will be more job postings for solar than there are for oil. And so we're, we're already in that transition in terms of the economic workforce, uh, in term, you know, the impact on the workforce. Our issue is to push for that, but also to push for a just transition. We don't want uh, oil worker jobs, which are union jobs, or which are living wages, to be shifted over to alternative energy, which may not be paying as well. They're not union, and uh, they aren't living wages. We're not looking to have them sacrifice uh, for this transition. Uh, we're looking to make a just transition and uh, partner with the unions. Um, so these are these are serious issues, um, and certainly the the local environmental organizations on the ground have been working tightly with uh, the unions to 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 fight for these things. Well, that is uh, Thomas Frank, activist and artist, uh, who's who, and of course you live in that area, so you're you're not some carpetbagger coming in. <laughs> you you told me a story about you trying to dredge out uh, part of the. The uh, waterways there before um, BP Whiting uh, got involved. Uh, oh, go right. ahead. I, I can. I was the uh, director of the Indiana Harbor Shipping Canal. I've, I studied urban planning, and if anybody knows Indiana Harbor Shipping Canal, up until recently it was considered the most polluted body water in America, and we hadn't done anything to clean it up in over 40 years. We just let it sit there. Uh, and that's how I really got involved with the environmentals here and the issues with the BP refinery because they sit on the canal and they're looking to build an international port to export a lot of these uh, their product to the to the world market. Um, so yeah, I, I have quite aware of what's going on down here. I live in the community and I'm also impacted, and so are my, is my family. You know, uh, one of the things that impressed me um, in an odd way uh, when I was there for a rally. Uh, the other year was um, the folks who live in the shadow of this tremendous facility. Um, and it's a little bit scary to look up and and see the might of the fossil fuel industry on display before you. And your playgrounds and your homes are in the shadow of that. Uh, and yet these people, they fight back. They, they haven't given up, and they say, we're going to reclaim our community. Uh, it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing. That's, that's an amazing story. It's a, hor- it's a terrible story. It's a, it's a story of where BP, when they made this $5 billion investment, and everybody traditionally understands it to be the Whiting Refinery, but when they made this investment, they moved the refining capacity down into East Chicago and across the street from our National Historic District called Marktown, which is a low-income workers' village. It's kind of based on a garden city concept. And um, what really uh, raises my hairs is that East Chicago awarded BP $165 million to build it in East Chicago. And then a month after they completed the project, they then started buying up all the properties and tearing down the historic district. And the hard thing about that is that those are the same people that contributed to the funds for building BP. And 
not and not only that, but BP depressed their property values so much that they were only able to sell them, or their property values now are, are only worth about sixteen thousand uh, dollars. These people can't move anywhere else, and now they're sitting underneath this mammoth mega tar sands uh, uh, distillation tower and coking unit that's just you know belching uh, just contaminants all over the place. Uh, it seems for me to me that it's cheaper for BP uh, to buy them out and move them than it is to uh, you know put uh, much more stringent environmental uh, you know um, scrubbers on and, and to stop this. Yeah, you know, it it seems as if BP wants to wipe this historic district off the map, like it never existed. You know, it's kind of a Soviet Union type of thing. It's like once it's gone, who will know that the thing ever existed? Um, yeah. And and as you exactly. mentioned, when you look across to see this facility, it's like a bad science fiction movie. Um, really, I mean, it is so intimidating and so huge and so scary. Uh, that uh, I wonder how these people continue to fight back every day. Yeah, it's it's it is like a science fiction. It's, it's shocking uh, that we can even think that this would be happening in the United States in this day and age. We tend to think much more, much better of ourselves here, but where we get our energy and what happens and how they 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 operate is just shocking to see and and to come on down here and see. Uh, what they are doing to these communities is shocking. It's just, it should, it's, it's unconscionable. Well, if you criminal. want... It's really criminal. It is. You're right. Unconscionable and criminal. Um, Thomas Frank, thank you so much. Uh, I, I was going to repeat uh, uh, the information about getting to uh, Whiting Lakefront Park, but uh, as soon as this tape ends, because we recorded this on Saturday, the day before the event i'm <laughs> i will do it live on my show uh in just a second and let people know but i want to thank you uh for uh taking the time today i know you're in the middle of organizing a lot of people and a lot of activity there so i appreciate you taking the time and you're standing right in that area aren't you right i'm at the i'm at the pavilion right now captain's log stardate four two three two six point one the Enterprise is under attack by an apparently hostile life form. Mr. Wolf, status report. Inexplicable, Captain. They appear to be perambulating vegetables. We are being stalked by stalks of asparagus. That is incorrect, Mr. Wolf. Killer asparagus was the subject of a very popular 21st century tome by the brilliant author Mike Novak. Mike Novak. I'm familiar with his work, and so am I. Mike Novak was one of the smartest, funniest people in the horticultural world of the 21st century. Tell me more, Mr. Data. He has been variously compared to Mark Twain, Dave Barry, and Edgar Allan Poe. Raven Gosplach, my favorite holiday dish. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Mr. Data, options. It seems to be available online at AroundTheBlockPress.com. AroundTheBlockPress.com. What do they have to say? Hmm. It appears that Mike Novak is a slapstick every gardener. I prefer my asparagus with a side of patach Mr. Wolf, are you joking? Actually, Captain, I believe he is choking. This is Heather Fry. Every time I open up an issue of Chicagoland Gardening Magazine, I know I'm going to learn something. And that's in spite of Mike Novak's column on the inside back page. If you've ever read it, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, in Chicagoland Gardening, you might pick up some knowledge in one of the excellent feature articles, or in one of the regular departments like Ask the Garden Pros, or the Regional Reports, or What to Do in the Garden or you might be inspired by one of the luscious photos. 
and Chicagoland Gardening Magazine is just one of 21 different publications of state-by-state gardening. Wherever you live in the Midwest or the South, state-by-state gardening has a magazine for you. They feature articles by some of the leading gardening experts in each state, including famous authors, nursery owners, state extension agents, master gardeners, even Mike. Subscribe today by going to statebystategardening.com or call 888-265-3600. That's 888-265-3600. Welcome back to the Mike Novak Show, still Chicago's only locally broadcast deep green gardening and environment program. Broadcasting live every Sunday from the Genesis Art Supply Building on North Elston Avenue on Q4 Radio and at MikeNovak.net. Here he is again, Mike Novak. And welcome to the second hour of the Mike Novak Show. And uh, let me get to um, that address, as I mentioned at the end of the taped interview I'll give it to you one more time in case you want to be part of the uh, action in Whiting, Indiana. It's at uh, Whiting Lakefront Park, Lakefront Park, uh, 1798, 119th Street in Whiting, Indiana, 46394. Now, as promised, let's go to the phone and see if we've got Dan Costa there. Dan, are you with me? Hello, Mike. Good morning. How are you? Uh, good morning. It's a beautiful, sunny morning. <laughs> sunny, but not too warm, right? <clears throat> you know, it's uh, slightly chilled. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> slightly. Uh, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, a lot of a lot of folks were panicking because of uh, of the weather and wondering uh, if their plants were going to make it. Now, you live out Westchester Way. Are you still there, or did you move? No, still there. Okay. What was, uh, I imagine you didn't get uh, frost in Westchester. No, we got down to 37. You got to 37. Yeah, and that's, you know, I got a um, an email from uh, Rick DeMaio uh, earlier, and he said, uh, no record for O'Hare. Low was 36. The record was 35 in 1895. Um <laughs> And uh, he said, too much high cloud cover kept temps from falling. Also, the recent rains may have kept the ground from cooling off. So uh, it probably didn't get quite as cold as folks thought it was going to get. No, I don't think it did. I think uh, we we kind of dodged the bullet there. Well, you know, you shouldn't have to dodge a bullet on May 15th, should you? Uh, no, but our latest frost ever in Chicago was May 25th, so... <laughs> That's true. It can happen. <laughs> it certainly can. Um, and that's why, folks, you know, that is, you know, and I was saying it a month ago. I was saying it a month ago that the uh, the 15th is what? The uh, historical kind of last date for frost, but it doesn't mean it can't come later. Well, the, the 15th is the day they say that we have a 50% or less chance of a frost right so meaning that it's it's in there it's in the mix it can happen so okay so i have to ask you because i'm sure and you're working a lot at uh by the way uh, dan uh is horticulturist at Vern goers greenhouse out in hinsdale um it's got to have been an interesting spring with the up and down temperatures uh 
Oh, yeah. We've had a lot of uh, questions about, you know, can I plant this? Should I wait? And yesterday was a lot of, uh, I planted my tomatoes and peppers. What can I do? <laughs> yeah, but, I know. And, and what I would have told folks is, why did you plant your tomatoes and peppers? Well, that's the question I want to ask. Uh, uh, <laughs> but you can't, right? <laughs> I can because I'm the radio guy, all right? Yeah, it's like, what would you do that for? Uh, <laughs> personally, I wait for Memorial Day myself. That's when my dad always planted his tomatoes, and it's always worked for him. Yep. And so I continue the tradition. But uh, uh, the thing is, if you had something out last night, like a tomato or a pepper, and it was not covered, it may have been damaged. And even so, even if not, putting these plants into the cold soil and to to the tropicals like uh, tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and squashes, uh, the soil right now is way too cold. And so it just stops them from growing. They just sit there. And then once it does warm up, the guy gets started again. Right. So, actually, you're slowing it down rather than getting ahead. Right. And, and I think that's really the point is that you're stunting the growth of those plants, those warm weather plants, um, it's just, it's not helping them. You're not getting a head start at all. In fact, you might be making things a little worse because now the plant's got to recover. You'd, yeah. You're better off, you know, and, and a lot of folks will say, well, you know, I could take it indoors, but there's no light indoors. And my response is, you know what, he, at this point, heat trumps light, um, that if you can keep the soil warmer, and put it on a windowsill and give it a little bit of light, or maybe put it under a shop light and give it a little fluorescent light, uh, you're probably going to do better because you don't want that really cold soil stunting the growth of your peppers and your tomatoes. Uh, am I right about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you, if you uh, keep them indoors, give them as much light as possible. Keep them watered, of course, and, and uh, let them grow slowly indoors. Uh, like you say, under light is is the best, and uh, then put them out once the soil is nice and uh, warm. Then you can uh, they go through the transition very easily. Um, yeah, and uh, <laughs> I just got a, a tweet from Bill Turk, my buddy Bill Turk, who says we planted uh, our tomatoes and peppers because we've got plans for August when it's finally warm. We didn't think our tomatoes uh, would grow very well in September. You know, and, and I understand the frustration of folks like, when's it going to get warm? Well, folks, it will get warm. It's, it's, oh, yeah. It's, you know, as uh, Dan said, if you kind of look at Memorial Day as the time when you get that in the ground, you're, you're going to be fine. You're going to be absolutely fine. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Somebody came up with this idea that everything has to be planted on Mother's Day or not at all. And that's really way too early for a lot of stuff. All right, that's a really good place to start, too. The, the tyranny of Mother's Day, all right? Now, the, there's a tyranny of Mother's Day for a number of reasons, one of which it's, you know, the the whole, you know, mom mom's pretty much ignored the rest of the year, and she gets the one day. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the, the – and then there's the garden centers. So here we are, and this year it was May 8th, last week, which is – Way too early to put out a tomato um, and some of these other plants that uh, that you're giving mom, uh, and the, and it's also that's sort of like the starting gun for gardening. Everybody thinks, well, it's Mother's Day, we should be able to put stuff out, and then of course a week later today we've got temperatures mm -hmm. in the 30s and uh, it wreaks havoc. So again, let's tell folks 
Memorial Day. I always say June first. I don't even yeah. I don't even bother with Memorial Day. I say just wait till it's June, okay? Because that you're pretty you're pretty safe at that point. And if we get a a frost after June first, well, the world's coming to an end, okay? <laughs> we yeah. know that. Uh, move south. Uh, you know, because the other thing you told me, and you know, and the thing you got to remember is that tomatoes and peppers and squash. Uh, and 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 melons, those are warm season vegetables. Well, they have tropical origins. Yeah, and so they they can't handle this cold weather. They're not adapted to it. And so uh, when we do get a cold snap, and they're sitting out there, it, it does damage the plant. Uh, if we had a frost, anybody that did have a real frost, uh, they're going to notice maybe some blackening on the plants. Uh, some glassy appearance in in the plants. Uh, these are all signs of frost damage, and uh, otherwise just a slowing down. The plant that was growing vigorously for the last several days when it was warm uh, during the days may just kind of sit there now for a week or so and sulk. <laughs> and, and, cold. Yeah, they sulk like koi sulk at the bottom of your pond in uh, in the winter. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's a really good point also is that if you've got a cold frame or you've got a little greenhouse, and Kathleen and I have uh, one of those portable greenhouses. And i got to thank Ed Curran, meteorologist Ed Curran, who gets a ding, mm-hmm. who gave that to me like a dozen years ago. And he said, I don't know what to do with this. I can't put this anyplace. And I said, I'll take it. And I didn't use it for a long time. And then last year I put it out and put it out again this year. Um and our tomatoes are in there, and they're doing great. I mean, it's not heated, but all it needs is to capture a little sunlight during the day, and it heats the inside of it. It's, you know, like eight feet tall and six feet wide and seven feet long um, with this plastic. Um, and uh, it and the tomatoes are doing great. We've lost, you know, we had like 16. We lost two of them, but that I don't think that was the weather. It was uh, a transplant shock. Um, I think uh, yeah. did, did him in. Uh, There's always some of that. The, yeah, you always okay. That's that's a good point because you know you beat yourself up and you lose two little tomato plants, but that, that's part of the deal, isn't it? When you're transplanting. Oh yeah, you can't grow every, keep every single plant alive. They're going to have some losses in the greenhouse industry. They always tell the growers you get ten percent. You know, you can, if you kill less than ten percent of the plants in the crop. And that's perfectly fine. That's expected. Yeah, we uh, we we were a little over ten percent, but not much. So we lost. If two, you, uh, you know. if you have a little space in there for some gallon uh, plastic jugs, you could also get a little bit of extra heat uh, for the nighttime. Just fill them up, paint them with black paint, uh, fill them up with water, put a cap on the top. When they're sitting in the sun during the day, the water is going to warm up because of the black surface on the outside and then that'll slowly release the heat after it gets dark out i like so that'll that give you a little bit of a extra warmth for that, later in the day that's the evening very cool that's a great idea and you know and, and and you don't have to have a greenhouse some folks have cold frames um mm-hmm. and it'll do the same thing it'll heat up during the day it'll retain the warmth at night and uh, your tomatoes uh will get their sunlight and their warmth, of course, with a cold frame, it's a little tougher because you got to make sure that it's deep enough, uh, depending on how big your tomato plants are getting. 
yeah. ours ours are already I don't I, you know eight inches tall in some places so it you know they they start to grow fast once they uh, they get uh, happy and uh, start to grow um, you know they they can they can move along pretty quickly so I'm I'm actually thinking we're right on schedule because it's the fifteenth today. Uh, by the time we get to June 1st, those plants are going to be really ready to go into the ground. Uh, oh yeah! So I'm I'm very happy with uh, with the timing we did, and we and we did some really cool stuff last year. I interviewed this guy, Dr. Harry Klee, at the University of Florida, who was trying to create the perfect tomato, and he 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 came up with this hybrid. You know his his whole deal is uh, creating tomato that. Grows easily, uh, ships well, looks good, tastes great, and uh, he wants to get it in the market. And he created one called the Garden Gem. He's also got another one. Um, and the Garden Gem is, uh, we've got several of the Garden Gems growing right now. I can't wait to see what they're like. Uh, and his goal is to get the tomato growers to accept these and then grow them so that we can stop having those cardboard tomatoes in our supermarkets and have tomatoes that actually taste like a tomato. Well, the reason that a lot of those tomatoes in the supermarket don't taste good is even though they look red to your eye, those are green tomatoes. Because when they're picked in the field, in order to ship them, they've got to have some some uh, strength to them, some uh, hard skin. And so they're picked green. They're put into a box that has a plastic liner in it, uh, there's uh, ethylene gas that's pumped into that uh, plastic liner bag, and then it's sealed. And ethylene gas ages uh, plant tissue, so it causes the red color. So they, they may go in green, but by the time they get to the grocery store and somebody opens it up, now they've turned red. And it's simply because of the gas that they were subjected to along the way uh, that changes the color. But really, they're still, they're still a green tomato. So the point so is, it hasn't built up the flavor, right? So they're not actually ripe; they're right. ju- they're just red. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Uh, that's uh, by the way, Dan Costa from Vern Goers Greenhouse in Hinsdale. You can go to their website, Vern Goers, and that's spelled V E R N G O E R S Greenhouse dot com. Uh, so what are you seeing out there this spring, Dan? As you said, the temps are up and down, and people are confused. Well, a lot of people are uh, call, talking about uh, perennials that have died out, have failed to show up, or whatever uh, this year. Um, I had kind of an unusual one yesterday. A woman was complaining that the zinnias that she bought from us last year have not come up again. Uh, uh, <laughs> didn't didn't quite get the point of them being annuals, but uh, we get that once in a while. But uh, there's been a lot of problems with. Uh, true perennials that have, have not arrived. And I think a lot of it had to do with uh, two things, either winter rot or frost heaving, because we had a lot of up and down temperatures during our mild winter. And so what happens is that frost will build up underneath the uh, crown of the perennial and it pushes it upward. And as it does so, it tears the roots and then it exposes the crown to the air and drying and so the plants can either be badly damaged or die out uh, because now they're literally sitting out of the soil. Yeah. And uh, that's been a big thing. That's how, 
how come rocks show up in fields too where they hadn't shown up before? It's just frost pushes them up to the surface. And the other thing is winter rot because we had a situation where a lot of times the soil really didn't freeze very hard or very deeply. And so the roots were in pretty much wet soil all winter long, cold, wet soil. And so they tended to rot out. That that seemed to happen a lot this year. Yeah, I can I can understand that uh, because of those uh, the warm temperatures, uh, and you know we, we we were laughing about the annual thing, but seriously, um, a lot of folks don't know the difference between an annual plant and a perennial. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a common question. Yeah, and and the idea is that a perennial plant. Uh, is a, is a plant you put in the ground. It should be able to overwinter and come back. Now, here's the problem with that: some uh, perennials last forever, basically, and some will last a few years and disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you can call something a perennial, but it might not come back. Uh, so, you know, you can understand the confusion on the part of folks when they say, "Well, I thought that was a plant that was supposed to come back after." Uh, you know, every come back every spring, and it didn't. And you have to explain, well, yeah, except that there are some plants that aren't as reliable. And things happen, as you just pointed out, where the, the ground may heave, the frost may push the plant out of the ground, the roots get exposed to the air, and it dies. Um, that can happen. Now, one of the ways you fix that is by mulching around the plant, I would assume. Mm-hmm. And you mulch late in the season, not early. You want the ground to get start to freeze and then you mulch uh, because really what you want to do is keep the ground cold so you avoid all the frost heaving if you mulch too early the ground is still warm and uh, it's creating more of that situation where you can have rotting and other things going on and also as a great if you mulch too early uh, you're creating a good spot for little rodents like mice to move into those uh, that mulch for a winter home if it's deeper. And like with roses and things, they might be chewing on the bark of your rose all, all winter long. So I, I grow, as you know, my bonsai trees, and I put them in mulch for the winter. And I do it around Thanksgiving when it's getting cold because that way the mulch will freeze and I won't have a problem with mice getting in there and eating the bark off the trees. Yeah. Well, and the, and that's that's the other thing is um, knowing the timing. It's like knowing the timing for dealing with insects. Uh, timing mm-hmm. timing with insects all depends not on your schedule, but on the life cycle of an insect. Oh yeah. Um, so, for instance, one, the great one that you taught me that I uh, adhere to now quite uh, not exactly religiously because I've got some plants growing right now, but. Uh, mm-hmm. growing squash. Your mm-hmm. your advice to me has always been, if you plant it uh, after the 4th of July, you won't have problems with the squash vine borer. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's past the life cycle where it's going to dive into your vine and turn it to mush. And that's what happens if you've got a plant, uh, you've got this really healthy vine, uh, it's a squash or related plant, and then it, suddenly the vine turns to mush, you've probably got a borer in there which is one of the ways that happens. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, moth is out during June laying her eggs, and uh, as soon as she's done laying eggs, she dies. So by uh, by the 4th of July, they're all dead, and you won't have that problem. Mm-hmm. 
I want to get back to something that we discussed several weeks ago on the program. And by the way, uh, Dan Costa from Ferngar's Greenhouse here. Uh, if you got a question, shoot it to me on Facebook uh, or Twitter or my email, mike at mikenovak.net, uh, or call in. What a concept that is. Uh, and that number is 312-985-7834. But I want to get back to uh, something we discussed when, when I was talking to Keith Novakowski and Nick Fuller about native plants several weeks ago, and we got to talking about plants that were in my yard. And, and in particularly, I asked a question about Monarda, Monarda didyma, and, mm-hmm. and the geraniums, the uh, cranesbill that I yeah. had growing in my yard. And you sent me answers to both, and I didn't see them until after the show. But mm-hmm. let's talk about the, the didyma first, the monarda, because I was asking, well, is this a true native? Um, do, I get, you know, do I get brownie points for growing this in my <laughs> yard or not? Well, it, it is native, but not to the Chicago area. Uh, it's native to uh, areas like New York and Pennsylvania, uh, Virginia, Ohio, that whole, whole area out there. And so it is their native one. We have the uh, fistulosa, which is the purplish one, growing in this this part of the country. But uh, you, the didyma has the bright red color. Uh, for the most part, most selections or hybrids of it are red. Uh, there's one called uh, Jacob Klein, uh, which is a fairly large growing uh, selection. Uh, it has a very large flower, very striking red. And that one was actually a uh, natural uh, sport. And some horticulturists were driving down a highway in uh, in Virginia, I believe it was, and they happened to spy this large growing monarda alongside the road. And so, of course, they hit the brakes and ran back and took some cuttings and brought the cuttings back with them and rooted them and uh, grew this plant that, was growing very nice and everything, and so they gave it a name and eventually introduced it into the uh, horticultural trade. So it is really the species. It's just a a version of the species that actually grows a little uh, larger and a little stronger. The one that I have, the Monarda didyma. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, okay, so I'm going to put myself on the cusp. There. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> like, it's, uh, it's, 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 well, that's what they call a native var. Right, I guess. Um, well, it's it simply, it's not even a cultivar. It's just a wild uh, natural sport. A natural sport. And a sport, of course, is something that in nature uh, is a self-breeding uh, out, yes, out, in, out in the wild. Yeah. Um, but you know what? I'm not going to rip it up because it was in my mom's garden and her mom's garden, so I'm sticking with it. Yeah. Uh, and it still attracts butterflies and hummingbirds and oh, that sure. and that sort of thing but i but i what the compromise i will make is i will get myself some of the local variety um, Yeah, fistulosa is a beautiful plant yeah monarda fistulosa so uh, mm-hmm. that's what i need to do now the other one was the geranium that mm-hmm. we were trying to figure out what geranium i had and and folks you need to know if you're listening it's not the geranium with the big blooms that you see in the garden pots. And this is where you get in trouble in horticulture because uh, folks will have because, – because plants are named – they have these common names. And a geranium is actually pelargonium. 
mm-hmm. uh, that's the genus of the geranium in those pots. But the geranium that's a, a perennial, which comes back each year, except when it gets heaved out of the ground by frost, mm-hmm. um, that is geranium. That's the, the genus for that. And we were yeah, trying it's the to. The true geranium. Yeah, the true geranium. Uh, sometimes also called Cranesbill. Uh, I know this is really confusing if you don't understand this, but I'm, I'm doing my best here. Um, and we were trying to figure out which geranium I had, and apparently I don't have the native one. You explained it to me in mm-hmm. the email, and I couldn't find it. So what, what did you tell me? Uh, well, the geranium that you have, you said that it had very fragrant foliage. Right. And the one that has very fragrant foliage is uh, geranium macrorhizum or Bigfoot geranium, which is a European species. Darn. Uh, the net, the native one, which is geranium maculatum, uh, does not have that that scent in in its foliage. Uh, both have pink flowers. Uh, macrorhizum forms a ground cover. It spreads by underground runners. Uh, maculatum does as well, but I don't think it's quite as... Uh, it, it's, it looks a little bit more ragged than, than the macrorhizum. The macrorhizum is, is aggressive, okay? Let's call it that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, but the thing is well, about... they both are. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is with both of them, that it's not hard to get them, dig them up because the roots are so shallow. They're very yeah. shallow roots. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they're, they're beautiful. I mean, those geraniums are just wonderful, and mine are in bloom right now. Uh, and the macrorhizum that I have, and thank you for explaining that to me, I'm going to have to take out some of that and put in the native variety. But I love the smell of the foliage, and I think it also deters critters. Um, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that's why plants have fragrances like that. Uh, most, A lot of animals don't like to mess around with plants that have uh, fragrant foliages. And so planting herbs sometimes in with your other plants can help actually to, to uh, discourage some uh damage from rabbits or deers or whatever because they will pick up the scent and they go, oh, this can't taste good. <laughs> well, and, and that's why folks uh, recommend planting allium, which is onion. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are various native species of allium. And um, folks say, you know, how do I deter deer, as you were mentioning, and rabbits? And one of the ways is sometimes it's to ring your other plants with uh, herbs, as you said, like allium and others, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they call them sometimes the stinkies in the business. Yep. And one of the ways you can recognize some of them is that they often have gray leaves. That's um, it's not always, but um, you know this is one of the ways that you recognize that a plant might have some fragrance. Um, so that's the, mm-hmm. you know, but you can always ask somebody like Dan Costa at an independent garden center. Go there um, and ask questions, and that's the reason. Lately, you know, I've been reading about uh, the big box store. I saw an article. I got uh, – there's a um, a publication in Chicago called Checkbook. I don't know if you ever heard of it, and it's like Consumers yeah. Report, except locally for Chicago. And they had a thing on garden centers, This their, their latest issue. So I went and looked through it. And by the way, Vern Goer's got really good ratings. You'll, you'll be happy to know. Very good. Yeah. 
Uh, you tell your bosses that. Okay. Wait. Let me give you a, a, a beer ding. There you go. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And um, uh, but what really annoyed me is that they listed in the same group uh, a garden centers all these Home Depots, and I went, those aren't garden centers. <laughs> those are box no. stores. That's different. And 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 the part of the problem is they list these. Uh, Home Depots, and then they say, and their plants are forty-four percent cheaper than at these others. You know, and all I can, and I'm, and I'm yelling at the my computer screen when I see this, so that I can say, uh, and I'm yelling at them and saying, you know, but you don't get any advice, and you don't get a good selection. Yeah, forty-four percent cheaper for what? Well, they can price cheaper because they don't have a need to make any money off of the plants. They can either sell them at the price they paid for them or even cheaper because that's what's called a lost leader. They just want to get you into the store, and then you're going to buy other things while you're there. And unfortunately, the independent garden centers cannot be selling lumber and nails and uh, you know all the other things, plumbing supplies and everything that the big box stores are selling. So we need to make some money off of the plant material that we bring in because it's our only source of revenue, which keeps us in business. Uh-huh. So our prices naturally have to be a little higher. Right. It's, and we're not buying the millions of plants that they are, and we're not buying on consignment as they do. Yeah. Every plant that, that Home Depot throws away, they don't pay for. Every plant that, that goes through the register, they do pay for. So they're only paying for a fraction of what's there. We pay for the whole thing. Yeah. And as I as I mentioned, uh, you get the bonus of having somebody who knows something about the plant can tell you. Somebody, okay, let me put it this way. Somebody who can explain the difference between an annual and a perennial, all right? Which uh, some folks at the Home Depot might not know. Now, they mm-hmm. might, but you just don't know that. So I, I just find it uh, unfair. And I also uh, warn people, remember when you could go to a bookstore? Uh, an independent bookstore that ain't happening anymore. So if you want nope. that to happen to garden centers, sure, just keep shopping at Walmart. Yeah, keep shopping at Lowe's and at and a Home Depot. Yeah, and then all those garden centers will disappear, and then yeah, you won't get any advice. Then you then you're stuck going to the inner tubes and trying to find it there. Well, you know, people sometimes think that they can go to the independent garden center to get their questions answered because we give free advice. And then they go elsewhere to buy the product. <laughs> yeah, you've told me these but stories. Free, yeah. free advice is not free. You should pay for it. You, you should, if you get the advice, you should buy the product where you get the advice. Absolutely. Uh, that's uh, uh, Dan Costa from Vern Gore's Greenhouse in Hinsdale. I'm Mike Novak. It's the Mike Novak Show on Q4 Radio, 1680 AM. Uh, I'm going to give you, we've, we've, we've waxed poetic on plants and perennials and annuals and vegetables. You're a bonsai guy. Yep. <laughs> here we go. I'm giving you your platform here. Tell me a little bit about what's going on in the world of bonsai this year. Well, first and foremost, our club, which is the Prairie State Bonsai Society, will be having our show out at the Morton Arboretum on the 6th and 7th of August. And I hope to get another plug in for that closer to the time on oh, your yeah. show. Oh, yeah. You'll come back and we'll talk about it. And we'll be part of the Arboretum's Asian Festival, as we have been the last few years. If you come out, you will see real bonsai on display, ones that belong to the members, not the fake bonsai that you see in the big box stores. Mention them again. <laughs> we keep ripping on the box. Okay, why is it fake bonsai in the box stores? Well, as I wrote to you in an email, I said that the 
stuff in the big box stores is the Elvis on black velvet versus a fine art painting. Uh, that stuff is done uh, in massive quantities. There's no artistic thought given to it. It's simply that somebody knows that by putting the name bonsai on it and putting it into a funny little pot makes it sell at a much higher price than if it was left in the one-gallon nursery can and sold as a garden plant. Uh, bonsai are designed plants. They're grown uh, to imitate uh, styles and shapes of plants you would see growing in nature, so they should look like natural trees, just that the image has been distilled down and simplified to uh, create the uh, the bonsai. And also the trees uh, are not necessarily the tiny little things you see in the stores. Bonsai are often up to three feet tall, uh, although they can be less. There's some that are maybe an inch or two tall. And there's a wide variety of materials that can be used, not just the juniper, but uh, yeah, I, I, I wanted to get to that. Is that that's part of the problem too? What they sell in the box store, they're like all they're all junipers. They're they're not necessarily what you would consider a tree. I mean, a juniper right. can be a tree, a small tree. Yeah, sure, okay. But explain the difference between doing a, a juniper bonsai and some other genus. Well, junipers are great trees. I like them for bonsai purposes, and they're very easy for the uh, beginning grower. The thing is that they are an outdoor tree, and people will see these things in pots, and they automatically assume that since it's in a pot, it must be a houseplant. And junipers uh, and pines and maples and elms, they've all evolved over the millennia to have four seasons. And so if you don't give them that condition, they, they're not able to survive for very long. So I always say that a juniper brought indoors has a six-month lifespan uh, at best. The trees need to be out in the sun. They need to be out during the winter in the cold uh, to get their dormancy. And so the outdoor trees must stay outdoors all year round. They do need winter protection, but uh, other than that, they do stay out and are exposed to the weather all year round. Yeah, but that's where... If you want something for indoors, then you got to go with a tropical like a ficus or a Hawaiian shiplera or something like that that you can grow indoors. Ah. Those are tropicals. Yeah, the outdoor ones, that's where people's heads explode, where they, mm-hmm. they, they, as you said... They see it in a pot, and if it's in a pot, obviously it's an indoor plant. Well, no, not necessarily. And and I, what I want to do is take them to your backyard, Dan, and show them all of the bonsai that you leave out all winter in the mm-hmm. back. And, of course, oh, yeah. you, you know, you, you put them in a protected area, and you mulch them, and you get them together and bunch them so that they, they, they can survive the harsh conditions, although it wasn't very harsh this particular winter. How's that on bonsai when you have a mild winter? How does that work? Uh, well, it has caused some dieback on some trees because they didn't get this, uh, some of the conditions that they really needed. And so I've talked to a couple of people. They've had some branches dying back on their trees and um, trees that just have not come out of the spring uh, growth period quite the way they should. They were a little slower or something. But in general, we haven't had too much of a problem with it. Uh, my problem has been getting my, my repotting done because you want to keep the tree warm after repotting. 
so the roots can grow, and we haven't had a lot of warm temperatures, so I'm way behind on my work. Yeah, that's uh, you, that's what you were telling me about uh, being on the show. It's like it's Sunday's your day off, and normally you'd be out there working on your bonsai, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, today I'm planning on doing a little bit more work if I because uh, it's still going to be cool for the next few days, so it'll... Uh, and then it'll warm up, so then the trees will start to grow. But I think I can still get a little bit of repotting done. But the trees are growing out now. Uh, I've been candle pruning the pines to make them fill out and pinching growth on other trees as they've, they've grown out. I did bring in a couple of maples and a uh, cedar elm last night because I didn't want any damage on the foliage because I'm hoping to put them into our show in August, so I want to keep them looking real nice. Oh, that's a really good point, is that uh, they had leafed out, and if they if it had frozen, you would have lost those leaves, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, they could have been damaged, because they're very tender right now. They're just starting to really develop, so so I didn't want to uh, risk any damage on them. Yeah. So but, uh, let, me, let me ask you a question before I let you go here, and that is, if somebody, if you're giving advice to somebody to start bonsai because as you pointed out to me it's meditative it's contemplative it is mm-hmm. um it's an art form it will it will ultimately probably relax you um mm-hmm. and i mean you mentioned going back to the samurais and 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 the benefits of doing bonsai so oh, yeah. how, what would what plant would you advise somebody to get to start a bonsai well, if they're starting one for indoors, I think ficus are one of the easier ones, especially the Chinese banyan. Uh, they're very forgiving plants. If you fail to water them frequently enough, uh, they will lose some leaves and let you know they didn't like it. If you water them too much, they may lose some leaves and let you know they didn't like it. But in general, they'll survive uh, pretty well. Uh, of course, they are killable, but... Uh, you know, you got to do a little bit more work to, to make that happen. Uh, if you, uh, you know, a lot of times people say, well, I don't want to fight this because they drop all the leaves when, you know, they die right away. But really when they drop leaves after you bring them from the nursery or the greenhouse, they're just adapting to the new environment. And then they'll they usually leaf out just fine afterwards once they get adapted. So it's not that it's a problem. Uh, for If you're going to grow one for outdoors, then I would suggest starting with a, a juniper uh, because they are very durable plants again. They're, they're basically bulletproof. They like a lot of sun. They like to be on the drier side. In nature, you'll find junipers growing in the harshest, roughest conditions out there so that they are uh, trees that are able to withstand a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on. And uh, But one thing, people think that a lot of times we abuse the trees, and that's how we keep them small, and that's not the case at all. The pruning and everything that we do actually stimulates the growth of the tree, uh, keeps it healthy. Uh, you know, people say, well, you prune them all the time, but people prune their hedges, they cut their grass, uh, that uh, prune roses, prune apple trees, that's all the same thing. Uh, root pruning happens every time trees are uh, any plant is transplanted, uh, so that's just a general garden uh, technique as well. And in general, bonsai can very easily outlive their uh, companions out in the wild. So you may have a tree in bonsai that's 300 years old, 
But if that tree was growing out in the open, it may have only made it to 100 years old. So it's not a cruel process at all. It's very (laughs) healthy for the plants. And it's healthy for the people because working on your tree, you know, a lot of people don't want to get started because they're nervous, oh, I'm going to kill a tree. So what? So you kill a tree. I've killed a lot of them. But the thing is to learn what happened, what went wrong, how come, and then try to rectify that situation. And once you get past that stage of being nervous about pruning or about pinching, you can enjoy the development of the tree. That's another thing I hear is, oh, it takes a lot of patience. But, yeah, okay, maybe it takes five years to or ten years to get to the picture I have in my mind. But what I see every year is the new growth, the development of the tree over time. It changes because it is a living thing. It's always doing something, and we're working with it. We're involved with it. So it's the enjoyment of the change and the going down the road to the final step. Uh, Nowadays, everybody wants instant satisfaction because of our computer-generated world. But this is the opposite of it. From high-tech, this is low-tech. And so this is a slow-moving, working with nature, uh, going down the path toward toward the uh, the goal that we had in mind uh, when we started. And so it, it is a very relaxing thing. I can come home from work, take a juniper and put it on the uh, table, and it's like 6 o'clock in the afternoon or the evening, start doing pinching and, and working with it and tidying it up and everything, and all of a sudden it's getting dark, and I says, how come it's getting dark already? And I look at my watch, it's like 8.30. And I don't even realize the time had gone by. So it is a very relaxing hobby. It, uh, if it wasn't, I don't think very many people would stay with it for very long. And it's not difficult. Uh, it's easy to learn. Words of wisdom from the master. <laughs> Dan Costa, you're going to be back uh, when we get to uh, the... Uh, Prairie State uh, Bonsai Society's uh, event in August, so we'll we'll talk about it then. And I hope some people take advantage of it. And and you know, just realize if the plant's supposed to be outside, leave it outside. If it's supposed to be mm-hmm. inside, bring it inside. And it's that simple. Uh, you can and always just a nod to the other club in the area. Yes, they're having their spring show at Chicago Botanic Garden next weekend, and that is the Midwest. Yeah, the Midwest Bonsai Society and the Chicago Botanic Garden will be having their show at the Botanic Garden on the 21st and 22nd. Okay, good. Now, that might, you know, folks, you want to wander over there and see what the possibilities are, there's a a place to get started. Or you could go over to Vern Goer's Greenhouse. What's the address again, uh, Dan? 5620 South Oak Street. 5620 South Oak Street. They're wonderful people. Uh, they know their stuff. You can go to the website, verngoersgreenhouse.com. Say hi to Dan when you stop in there and say you heard him on the Mike Novak show, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Dan, great talking to you. Thank you so much. Uh, you uh, go out and, and uh, do some snipping. First thing, I go out and cut my grass before the neighbors get on me. <laughs> okay, do that first then. And it'll grow <laughs> back. It'll grow back. I'm telling you, you won't kill it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Did you know that Genesis is the Midwest's largest source of airbrush supplies? Find out more at chicagoairbrushsupply.com or artsupply.com. Stop into their showroom at 2525 North Elston and say that you heard about them on Q4 Radio. And get an extra 10% off their already discount 
discounted prices all month long. Genesis, Chicago's only privately owned art supplier, serving all of Chicago's artistic and framing uh, needs, sorry, um, artistic framing and drafting needs since 1946. Rick DeMaio, weather is coming up. Hey, this is Peggy. When I speak at local events, people often ask me, aren't you the Peggy in the Natural Awakenings ads? And that makes me happy because it reminds me that Chicagoans want to live healthier lives and Natural Awakenings magazine helps them do just that. Natural Awakenings, it's the greenest, healthiest magazine in the Chicago area. Each month, we bring you the latest information about health and wellness, complimentary medicine, fitness and exercise, raising healthy kids, and even healthy pets. You'll find articles about healthy homes, too, including gardening, energy efficiency, and green living. And if you love good food, you'll always find tasty recipes and cooking hints. Check out our monthly calendar. It's full of events to help keep you connected. Natural Awakenings is available in more than 1,100 locations throughout Chicago and suburban Cook, Lake, and McHenry counties. And it's free. Or visit us online at nachicagonorth.com. Natural Awakenings. Feel good. Live simply. Laugh more. Trying to weather the housing market? Consider replacing your windows and siding. Remodeling Magazine says they're some of the nation's most popular projects today. Trust DR Services Unlimited, 847-998-1687 for all your remodeling and energy needs. Rated A-plus by the Better Business Bureau and recommended on Angie's List. DR is a proud member of NARI. DR provides exceptional quality at a fair price. Contact DR at 847-998-1687 or at RestoreTheNorthShore.com. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Yeah, you know, people don't, oh, did I lose? No, I think I've got them there. Okay. People don't play enough fog hat anymore. Don't you agree, Rick DeMaio? Um, I do. I do. Fog hat would be a perfect song on a, on a morning where it's foggy and you have to wear your hat. But I'm <laughs> seeing those two things happening today. Uh, well, I was playing that because I'm a fool for the city. That's the song. And, oh, I and, get it. I get it. I get it. Well, no, 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 you don't, actually. The, the, the connection I was going to make is one of the, the advantages of living in the city is when you get these warnings about uh, freezes and frost. It usually doesn't get down that quite that cold in, in the city. Um, and, and it didn't last night. Uh, actually, we were kind of spared, weren't we? Yeah, you know, I, I would agree with you on that, Mike. But you got to be careful. It wasn't a warning. It was just an advisory. All right, that's true. In the world of... As we love to say in the world of science, you were advised, you weren't warned. <laughs> okay, I was yeah. advised. No, you're right. It wasn't advisory. In fact, I, I posted it on right. uh, Facebook last night, and I did say it, it's an advisory. So you're right. Right, right, right. But you could, and I, and you could, I, and I do have to, uh, I do have to preface this conversation by saying that my, um, uh, my, my public relations director, which which happens to be me. Um, has said it's okay to talk to you 
uh, and to your listeners, because I have released my 2015 um, taxes, so we're all set to go. Ask me anything <laughs> you want. Can I see them? I want to see your taxes, dude. Yeah, yeah. I'll, um, I'll, you, you want the, you want the, the the push pin taxes? Is that the ones you want? The what are the push pin taxes? Yeah, see that that would be a Monty Python joke, you know, like tax. See, that would be a Monty Python joke. Here are my taxes. See, 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 Trump's missing the whole boat. He says, "Here's my tax," and if it was a Monty Python joke, they'd open up a box and there are your tax. You know, the ones that you push posters into the wall with. I don't have a rim shot here. Okay, I can't. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It wasn't that good of a joke. So no, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. The rim shot. No. Uh, so uh, well, let's talk about the 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 cool pocket we had here. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Well, uh, you know what, Mike? Let me let me. Can I go over some of the overnight lows? Real yeah, quickly? yeah. You sent those off to me. I got this list here, and uh, they all look pretty reasonable yeah. for the most part. Um, so- yeah, I mean, we 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 did tie a record out here field, made it down to thirty five degrees. Um, it was interesting because I was talking to one of my friends who does a lot of agricultural forecasting, um, and it was his concern that about thirty eight percent of the corn. Uh, in the Corn Belt has actually begun uh, to sprout up and show itself. Now, we've had about 65 to 70% of the fields in the Corn Belt actually planted, um, which is about 15 to 20% above the normal, which is what we should have this time of year. And because we had some warmer weather um, and then followed by some rain, the actual sprouts of the corn were about one to two inches above the soil. So when this when this cold wave began to become more apparent, um, this was a big concern because if you get down to about 28 or 29 degrees, uh, that that top one to two inch part of that plant um, could easily freeze, die off, and then you'd have to replant. Wow. What was making this? Yeah, yeah. What was making this more important was that the recent El Nino that had produced some uh, incredible amounts of rain um, as well as flooding and some hail um, in parts of Brazil and Argentina has actually ruined anywhere between 8 and 10 million acres, or I say uh, 8 and 10 million pounds. Um, I think it's pounds or it's bushels. You know, I'm not sure about that. I got to fill in it's bushels, Mike, um, of the total exporting crop from Argentina. What that means is that when countries like Argentina and Brazil um, have their corn crop ruined, what do you think that does to the potential corn crop here in the United States? Does it make it less valuable or more valuable? More valuable is what I would think. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, more valuable. <laughs> ding, so ding. It, it, would be, it would be a disaster to the farmers here in the Midwest if they are now growing something that is more valuable and also risks the threat of being ruined in the first two or three weeks of planting. Wow. So you can see a situation like this for the average person living in the city was not a big deal, but for the average farmer in the Midwest, this was a huge deal because of how we're so now globally collected, uh, uh, connected rather to the rest of the world. So from a financial and economic standpoint, um, this could have been a disaster uh, for the farmers here in the state of Illinois and also Wisconsin, Iowa, and parts of Indiana. But as you mentioned, uh, temperatures only made it down into the low mid 30s. So I think the, 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 the damage or the per- perceived damage from this particular cold wave 
uh, I think is going to go largely unaffected at this point. Uh, and I'm looking at the numbers, and actually it did get below freezing in a couple of areas. Rockford and Waukegan both got to 31. Aurora Sugar Grove, which is usually the coldest spot, got uh, 33. Um, right, and, and, and if you also look at DeKalb, DeKalb also only made it down to about like 33 or 34 degrees. And why do you think those particular areas, and this is also something for your listeners to think about, why do you think those particular areas that normally get really, really cold probably didn't get as cold? And it has to do with the weather that we had this past week. Why do you think so? Was it, uh, well, you meant, actually, I'm going to cheat because you talked about the water uh, in, the, in the soil. Is that it? Yeah, we had, yeah, we had anywhere between three and four inches of rain uh, between Tuesday and Wednesday. And we had another batch that came through on Thursday. And we had rain on Friday as well. And studies have shown when you have very, very wet soil, uh, it makes, first off, the, the, surrounding, uh, the surrounding trees, the grass, uh, a little bit more plentiful with moisture. And moisture has been known uh, to somewhat, you know, hold on to its temperature a little bit longer. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the fields as well um, were probably flooded. And when you have flooded fields, it's, it's much harder to have your overnight low temperature get much colder. So in an odd sense, from a micrometeorological standpoint, the heavy rain and the flooded fields actually kept some of those temperatures from getting colder uh, in this particular air mass. So we kind of, that, from that standpoint, it kind of worked out. That's very interesting. Now, what about this cold air mass? You had mentioned several weeks ago you thought we were done with frost. We didn't actually have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some people had it, some people didn't last night. But what changed? You know what? It, 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 I, I think what changed is the fact that in this kind of pattern, it's hard to go beyond two weeks. Um, <laughs> and and, and it, 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 it really is. And when you, and you, when you get these patterns where, it's, it's very wavy, um, and then you have these buckling jet streams. All it takes is, you know, one or two different weather systems to actually latch on to a colder air mass uh, and pull it further southward. Because even about a week ago, um, it looked like we were, we were pretty much locked into at least near normal or just slightly below normal temperatures. But I have to tell you, Mike, yesterday was one of the coldest days I can remember around here in the month of uh, in the month of May. Now, even though we made it up to 47 degrees, we didn't break uh, the record for the coldest temperature ever for the 14th of May, which happened to be 41 degrees, set all the way back in 1895 when records were actually kept, um, you know, downtown Chicago. Right. I got a feeling back then that was probably a big area of low pressure that probably just had a lot of a lot of rain in it. The lake was probably still you know, filled with some ice from, you know, from the previous winter, and the lake just never warmed up. But that was a cold, cold day yesterday. It was overcast. It was windy. Um, you know, the dew point temperatures, uh, I think also, which helped us not, you know, get any frost because they were kind of low. They were only in the low 30s. That was a cold day. But, but this air mass, actually, I look back at it the last three or four days, this pocket of air started out all the way over Hudson's Bay, which is completely frozen over. It usually is up until about end of maybe the second or third week of June. But this cold air mass literally came in from the northeast all the way from Hudson's Bay across southern areas of, of Ontario, all the way down Lake Superior and into Minnesota and Wisconsin and right into the state of Illinois. Um, 
So it was it was cold not only in the Great Lakes but also in parts of the Upper Ohio Valley. But I think the bottom line is even though the Botanic Gardens 31, I'm looking at uh, Waukegan 31 and Rockford 31. Uh, I also sent you, you know, kind of a, a trace or what we call a meteorological history of mm-hmm. the observations. The number of hours that the temperature actually got below 32 was only about two hours. And studies have also shown that it, unless you get down below 32 degrees for about four hours or more, right. you're probably not going to do any damage. So I think the fact that this was a very, very minor freeze event with almost no frost, um, I think we can say we got through this one, you know, okay. And <laughs> I, I think it's safe to I, I, I think it's safe to say also that it's going to be tough to get another another event close to this because it's just it's just really hard uh, to get cold this time of the year for a long period of time. The sun is up at almost five forty in the morning, and that's one of the saving graces as well. Right. Even though you're cold in the morning. That sun coming up, you know, warms you up pretty quickly. Uh, but as we pointed out when I was talking to Dan Costa earlier, some people who had their peppers and their tomatoes out are not going to be happy today because those plants are going to be sulking because they don't like they don't like the the soil temperature to be that yeah. cold. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And even I would think um, anybody who is planting any sort of these, um, you know, you know, we're all now into you know getting flowers and plants from other parts of the country, stuff that may normally bloom. Uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, or Memphis, or Little Rock, Arkansas, we go, well, I'll put it in a pot in a warm part of the, my backyard and it'll grow fine. They probably didn't do well yesterday because it was cold. I mean, it was 47 degrees. And even though, you know, here in the city, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's tough to get really cold in the urban heat out. You know, overnight low temperatures getting down to 35 um, is not something that they like. So I, I, I think, if, if anything, it's a wake-up call, you know, to say that men... <laughs> Men continue to try to conquer nature, and, and we lose, even if it's a small battle. <laughs> nature always wins. Uh, or as yes. Guy McPherson said, who's been on the show and he needs to be back on, nature bats last. Um, <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what's the forecast? Um, well, obviously, uh, cold start to the day. Uh, temperatures will eventually warm up to about... I'd say maybe 55, 56, maybe 57 degrees. Um, I took a walk this morning. I, I looked up at the sky, and you can still see a little bit of that milky, hazy look to it. That's still some of the remnants of the forest fires uh, in parts of western Canada. That was what we were talking about last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 57 for high today, still a little, little bit of a breeze in the air, so not exactly a warm day, but you know, temperatures normally for this time of the year, you know, it's close to 70 degrees, so still below normal. Um, we're in between, actually, two systems, one that kind of drags its heels across the middle part of the country, um, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then kind of the remnants of this big upper air trough up over the Great Lakes. Um, so we're going to be actually in between, like, partly sunny to partly cloudy skies for both Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Highs tomorrow uh, with any sort of a southwest wind this time of the year, you can make it up to 70 degrees. But I think tomorrow we'll probably make it up to about 65, 66. There's a slight chance of a shower or thunderstorm coming back into the area on Tuesday. Now, on Tuesday, the upper levels cool off a little bit again, so we'll probably be back down into the lower 60s. And then we stay kind of in that 60 to 65-degree range uh, for both Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And it does appear that by Wednesday and Thursday, the wind actually becomes a little bit more off Lake Michigan. So those of you living within about two to three miles of the lake, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, unfortunately, 
um, highs maybe only in the mid to upper 50s to near 60. So still nothing in the way of any real-time warmth that we should see this time of the year. But I do think the heavy rain that we had the last five days is basically done. Uh, and I sent you some maps you can send your listeners as well. Uh, we ended up with nearly three to four inches of rain in some parts of northern Illinois. Here in the Chicagoland area, about two to three inches, which is good. It kind of brought us back up to normal, kind of slowed things down a little bit for the farmers. But other than that, rainfall over the next five to seven days, probably less than a tenth of an inch. We get into a little bit of a dry period. But overall, temperatures still averaging about five to ten degrees below normal, Mike. Wow. Well, it's starting off uh, a little cool, but we'll catch up, I'm sure. I'm sure we will. We'll be <laughs> complaining about the heat before you know it. Uh, exactly. Uh, Rick DeMaio, thank you so much. We'll talk next week. Okay, buddy? Sounds good. Oh, Mike, by the way, next week I oh, won't be here. I'll th- be attending my son's uh, college graduation up in Milwaukee. So well, I'll let you know right now. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll try to get someone else to fill in, but I'll see you in two weeks. Well, we'll talk about that, and maybe Pat Scatch, or uh, we'll figure out somebody to fill in. You have a great time next week. Sounds good. Take care, Mike. Bye-bye. So that's it for the Mike Novak Show. I guess I'll just uh, say it myself. Go green or go home.